0: Welcome to The Great Awakening. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. Today I am going to be talking about Christian nationalism. I'm actually going to be reading from a long-form essay I wrote for American Reformer. Um, just really, uh, I was trying to explain Christian nationalism. Uh, I've been involved in this conversation since um, it really erupted onto the scene after the January 6th protests. And it's been something that I've been following. Uh, I've been reluctant to uh, fully embrace the label for myself, but I I have a lot of sympathies with the Christian nationalist side and see a lot of uh, miscommunications. Uh, I also kind of understand some of the objections to it. So I thought I could provide um, a helpful primer um, for those that are kind of new to this conversation uh, in the hopes of kind of Preventing some unnecessary division as this kind of shows up in your local church. So let's jump right into that. I hope you find this helpful. Christian nationalism, a primer for the layman. Unless you're fortunate enough to be blissfully offline, you've no doubt become aware of the Christian nationalism dispute within conservative evangelicalism. The debate has become pretty rancorous in recent months with accusations and memes flying back and forth across a growing divide. If you're new to this discourse, it can all be a bit overwhelming. This is an attempt to step back from the fray and explain the various perspectives in the hope of avoiding unnecessary division as this conversation inevitably spills over into the local church. What is Christian nationalism? First and foremost, Christian nationalism should be thought of as a label that is being applied to a wide variety of perspectives. Just because someone describes themselves as a Christian nationalist is no cause to start church discipline proceedings. Similarly, just because someone expresses concerns with Christian nationalism doesn't mean they're a woke progressive Christian. Much of the disagreement is between good people who hold different definitions of the term. While the concepts of a Christian nation goes back centuries, Christian nationalism as a label is a m- more recent development, although not as recent as you might assume. First appearing in print in the late 1800s, the term Christian nationalism has, been, has seen a gradual increase in usage since the mid-20th century. In 2006, New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg wrote Kingdom Come, The Rise of Christian Nationalism." in which she fearfully chronicles the rise of conservative evangelical political involvement. However, it wasn't until the January 6th Capitol protest that Christian nationalism exploded into the national consciousness. With images of protesters waving Christian flags and carrying crosses juxtaposed with rioters pouring into the Capitol building, the media began referring to the event as an insurrection carried out by white Christian nationalists. With the race-based qualifier unilaterally inserted, mainstream media supercharged the label with racism, even as nothing about January 6th itself indicated racist motivations for the protest. Appalled by what they were seeing in the media, many Christian leaders were quick to denounce Christian nationalism, white being quickly dropped as the protesters weren't exclusively white. In the ensuing weeks and months, the media capitalized on this aversion to Christian nationalism by running numerous pieces explaining the ascent of this dangerous ideology, which at this point had expanded to include any conservative political involvement by Christians. This expanded application of the Christian nationalism label is where the present rift within evangelicalism originates. Those who had already staked out an anti Christian nationalist position recognized that the term was now being applied to their beliefs, and began to try to distinguish Christian nationalism from run-of-the-mill conservative evangelical political activity. Other Christians, however, began to embrace the label in an attempt to rob the accusation of any rhetorical power. Though not entirely the case now, early on these two reactions to the label largely fell along generational lines, with boomers considering the term a slur evocative of the ethnic nationalism we defeated in World War II, and younger generations considering it descriptive of what we all seemed to want before this division. For the former group, Christian nationalism represented an alarming siren call to dangerous far-right extremism. For the latter, Christian nationalism converged with an incipient post-liberal movement and represented an invitation to reconsider long-held assumptions of politics and power derived from the post-war liberal consensus rather than scripture and church history. For the first year or so, both groups operated more or less independently of each other, with anti sians mostly dismissing Christian nationalism as a distraction or media slander, while those more comfortable with Christian nationalism associations quietly developed their ideas online and in newly formed publications like American Reformer. This rift would split wide open with the release of The Case for Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolfe. Although not the first pro-Christian nationalist book to market, Wolfe's book was the first to explore the big ideas unencumbered by current hot button political issues, instead focusing on retrieving historic reformed church teaching has been largely forgotten by modern-day evangelicals. To the uninitiated, his references to a Christian prince and apparent preoccupation with ethnicity, which most evangelicals today read as race, were extremely alarming. Add to that an imprudent discussion on Twitter about inter-ethnic marriage, a subject never actually addressed in his book and that he eventually clarified and retracted, And that was enough for anti-Christian nationalists to begin actively opposing the burgeoning Christian nationalist movement. Despite the growing animosity between these two camps, to the outside world, they are virtually indistinguishable. Both groups are anti-abortion. Both groups would outlaw gay marriage. Both groups favor increased political involvement from Christians. Progressives would consider both groups Christian nationalists. So what are the disagreements? There are some significant ones, but there's a lot of talking past one another. Anti-Christian nationalists often argue against things that most Christian nationalists would also be against. Much of what Christian nationalists want could easily be affirmed by anti-Christian nationalists. With so much misunderstanding in this debate, a closer examination of arguments for and against Christian nationalism is warranted. Anti-Christian Nationalist Arguments The anti Christian nationalists have put forth a variety of arguments against Christian nationalism that typically take one of five different forms. Number one, the God and country argument is a rejection of God and country Christianity with its star spangled worship services, celebrating America, and stump speeches by regularly invited politicians in place of sermons. The most extreme version of this sees America as a chosen nation like Israel. This is probably what your average offline evangelical pastor thinks of when you say Christian nationalism. The people who attend these sorts of churches are not involved in the Christian nationalist discourse at all. They might occasionally use the Christian nationalist label to describe themselves, as U.S. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene has done, but this version of Christianity is nothing new and something that the Christian nationalists were talking about would thoroughly reject as well. Ironically, Christian nationalists commonly hit with this argument are often accused of being anti-American by anti-Christian nationalists for daring to question the infallibility of the U.S. Constitution and our form of government. If anything, the anti-Christian nationalists are more closely aligned with this branch of Christianity that holds America sacred. 2. The theology argument maps the Christian nationalist discourse onto pre-existing theological debates over eschatology and theonomy. The anti-Christian nationalist assumption in this argument is that all Christian nationalists are post-mill theonomists who want to replace the Constitution with Old Testament civil law so they can usher in the kingdom of God on earth. While it's undeniably true that the Christian nationalist moniker has been adopted by some who hold to post-millennial eschatology, and others who would consider themselves theonomists, it's just as true that there are plenty of post-mills and theonomists who reject the Christian Nationalist label, and many who would embrace the label but reject postmillennialism and theonomy. Stephen Wool, for instance, rejects both. This argument against Christian nationalism, like the underlying theological debate it's a proxy for, often relies on cartoonish versions of postmillennialism and theonomy to argue against positions that Christian Nationalists even the ones who are post don't actually hold. The Christian nationalist movement is not interested in using the state to bring about the kingdom of God through forced conversions. The more substantive version of this argument contends that a Christian nation would have to enforce the first table of the law, which would be a tantamount to forcing belief and therefore unbiblical. 3. The adjective argument objects to Christian nationalism on the grounds that the word Christian should never be used as an adjective to describe anything other than regenerate Christians, either individually or in a group. According to this perspective, best articulated by Jonathan Lehman, a nation can only be Christian if every citizen of that nation is regenerate. Therefore, a Christian nation is not something we can expect this side of Jesus' return. More of a semantic argument, this does, however, raise some legitimate theological concerns that Christian nationalism would give unregenerate sinners the false belief that they are Christian just because they are citizens of a Christian nation. This is the same concern shared by critics of cultural Christianity who would argue that pagan citizens are easier to evangelize. Although there are some consistent stalwarts that reject any use of Christian as an adjective, Proponents of this argument don't typically have the same objections to Christian schools. They rightly recognize that a school can be instituted to provide a distinctly Christian education and that calling it Christian in no way implies that the students at that school are all regenerate. Why couldn't the same be true of a nation? Four, the historical argument relies on the historical record to argue that every time Christian nationalism has been tried throughout history, it has failed. Some proponents of this perspective cite atrocities in history like the Salem Witch Trial and the Spanish Inquisition as the inevitable outcome of Christian nationalism. More measured arguments point to Christian countries like the United Kingdom with its Liberal Church of England as an example of how explicitly Christian nations are no longer Christian in any meaningful sense of the word. This argument suffers from a selective reading of history that ignores the fact that many of the atrocities and injustices referenced were aberrations in the long history of Christendom, which established a thriving civilization and spread the gospel throughout the Western world. Also, neglected in this historical argument are the teachings of theologians, church fathers, and reformers that support Christian nationalist arguments for a more robust relationship between church and state. Looking to formerly Christian nations as examples of the inevitability of decline tells us little about how we should order our society. In a fallen world, no worthwhile endeavor is going to be perfectly executed and resist the inevitable decline. That's just the state of the world we live in. To go back to the Christian school comparison, one could easily point to Harvard, Princeton, and Yale as examples of why Christian colleges never work. But that shouldn't stop us from trying to provide a Christian alternative to secular universities. While there's much to learn from history, we should take care not to let past failures prevent us from starting new endeavors. Given a long enough timeline, you could easily conclude that Paul's missionary endeavors were pointless because many of those areas are now dominated by Islam. Five. The ethnic nationalism argument is concerned that Christian nationalism is really a cover for white nationalism and kinism. Many anti-Christian nationalists suspect that Christian nationalists desire to purge our nation of non-whites in order to protect white bloodlines and prevent and preserve white culture. They bristle at any language suggesting it's good to love one's people or nation over and above other people or nations. The most intense form of this argument maintains that Christ obliterates all earthly distinctions and that a Christian's only loyalty is to the family of God, regardless of nation or culture. Prioritizing one's nation or people is considered rank heresy. This angst about ethnic nationalism seems to underlie much of the discourse. No matter which argument is being used initially, the debate often ends up with heated exchanges about Christian nationalists' failure to address perceived racism within the Christian nationalist camp. While much of it is overblown and alarmist in nature, the concerns are not unfounded. Any movement that operates at least partially outside the Overton window is bound to attract people with views that actually belong outside the window of acceptable discourse. There are kinists using the Christian nationalist label who believe that interracial marriage is a sin. There are also dissident right figures with questionable tactics and beliefs Who, though they are not Christian, share a similar analysis of our current political moment and end up a part of the conversation. Anti Christian nationalists are not wrong to be concerned about Christian nationalism being a gateway into aberrant theology. There are good Christians unwittingly being lured into heresy because they're drawn to false teachers who are willing to question the reigning liberal orthodoxy and fight the ruling regime. However, the extent of the problem is still an open question. Christian nationalists have been reluctant to confront these issues for a variety of reasons. Christian nationalism is a political movement focused on defeating the left. Most Christian nationalists just don't recognize a legitimate threat coming from the right. They worry that any attention given to problems on the right ultimately helps the left, which, holding all the levers of power in this country, is an existential threat right now. Christian nationalists are also trying to push the Overton window rightward, and are hesitant to draw boundaries that would solidify its current position. Christian nationalists should be careful not to be so politically minded that they ignore legitimate theological concerns developing on the right, such as the Nietzschean cultural analysis that traces our current societal problems not to liberalism, but to Christianity, which is regarded as much too weak to prevent liberalism from consuming everything. As Christians, defeating the left shouldn't be our only priority it's possible to make clear affirmations and denials such as the statement on Christian nationalism and Doug Wilson's thorough repudiation of kinism without participating in right cancellation campaigns that only benefit the left. Anti-Christian nationalists should understand that there are plenty of topics and ideas outside of the Overton window that are not in any way unbiblical or out of bounds for Christians to discuss. Much of the fear surrounding Christian nationalism has been stoked by conversations happening outside the Overton that offend liberal sensibilities. Anti-Christian nationalists hear ethnicity and automatically think race. So a conversation about ordered loves, natural affections, and what it means to love your people in a multi-ethnic society barreling toward globalism is interpreted in the worst possible way. They should extend more charity to Christian nationalists engaged in difficult conversations, that wrestle with important problems. When addressing legitimate sin on the right, they should avoid painting with a broad brush and attributing the errors of one to the entire group. Don't nutpick. That's when you pick the worst person on your opponent's side and pretend like that is illustrative of everyone that uh, disagrees with you. Don't assume guilt by association. Now having thoroughly discussed the anti-Christian nationalist position, let's turn to the Christian nationalists. What are they actually about? Conservative evangelicals using the Christian nationalist label can essentially be divided up into two groups. Practical Christian Nationalists. The first is focused on concrete problems and immediate goals. They have come to realize that the neutral secular society is anything but neutral. Our laws and cultural norms are always based on an underlying moral framework. Wokeness has filled the void created as Christianity has been pushed farther and further out of public life. This group rejects a conservatism that defends drag queen story hour as a blessing of liberty and has failed to conserve anything. In its place, this group champions a more robust conservatism, unafraid to exercise power, to restrain evil and promote good, according to a Christian moral framework. They believe America was founded as a de facto Christian nation under a federalist structure and seek to return to a proper understanding of our founding principles. They want Christians to recover the will to govern according to a Christian moral framework. They're largely uninterested in Christian princes, established churches, or debating the contours of the Constitution, focusing instead on ending abortion and actively opposing LGBT plus ideology that is, transing kids, with legislation that bans trans surgeries and keeps indoctrination out of schools. If asked what Christian nationalism looks like, these Christian nationalists would point to the bold policies of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, combating wokeness, CRT, and radical gender ideology. This group fully recognized that we have transitioned into what Aaron Wren calls negative world, and that many of the ministry models that flourish during Neutral World are inadequate for, and perhaps left us unprepared for, the challenges we are presently facing. As a result, these Christian nationalists are rethinking a lot of long-held assumptions about ministry and cultural engagement. This has been a point of contention between them and anti-Christian nationalists who have been slow to recognize, quote, what time it is, and have a vested interest in neutral world ministry models. For these Christian nationalists, globalism is rightly understood to be a force for spreading wickedness around the world. They love their country and don't want to see it subservient to the evil agenda of the World Economic Forum or destroyed by open borders immigration. They want a strong nation based on Christian principles as they believe the founders intended. They want a Christian nation and they're opposed to globalism. So sure, call them Christian nationalists. Simple as that. This view represents the vast majority of conservative Christians adopting the Christian nationalist label, and plenty of others who are reluctant to embrace the label. Think of it as a reinvigoration of the Christian right that is throwing off the neocon shackles that have kept it from actually accomplishing anything. Theoretical Christian Nationalists The second group, while not unconcerned with more immediate problems, is primarily focused on political theology in answering the big questions about the nature of power and the relationship between church and state, questions too long ignored by American Protestants. Stephen Wolf's book fits squarely in this category, but is hardly representative of everyone occupying this space. These are largely scholars who seek to recover historic church teaching that has been replaced over time with beliefs more derived from the post-war liberal consensus than from scripture or the Christian tradition. This group is much more interested in determining what is permissible in terms of church-state relations and societal structure than it is in prescribing concrete changes to existing government. Talk of a Christian prince is not these Christian nationalists expressing a desire to replace the constitution with an all-powerful Christian monarch. The Christian prince is an archetype for government authority much like Plato's philosopher king or Machiavelli's prince, two staples of political philosophy. The Christian prince could just as easily represent a constitutional republic as it does an actual monarch. It's a philosophical exercise to imagine what a Christian nation might possibly look like. This is relevant because this group has significant overlap with the dissident right, which has a very sobering analysis of the times we live in. Whereas the first group of Christian nationalists generally has an optimistic outlook on what is achievable within the current system, these Christian nationalists are more pessimistic about whether or not there's any hope of riding the ship. Influenced by books like Christopher Caldwell's The Age of Entitlement and Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen, they essentially believe America is a failed state on the brink of collapse, the Constitution having effectively been replaced in the 60s or earlier. They believe the only way out is through. Their project is much more focused on what might emerge from the rubble. With their faith in democracy and our systems of power eroded, they are, to a large extent, indifferent about persuading normal people or normies. This gives them a certain devil-may-care attitude that, at its best, frees them up to have important conversations comfortably outside the Overton window. At its worst, however, This aloofness has a tendency to devolve into a sometimes cruel cynicism and contempt for people who don't know what time it is. This group of Christian nationalists would do well to resist the cynicism inherent in the dissident rights cultural analysis and take time to patiently explain their ideas to other Christians unaccustomed to having their post-war liberal paradigm challenged instead of responding with juvenile and derisive means. Humor and satire can be incredibly effective at spreading ideas, to see Oren McIntyre, but it should be at the expense of the left, not earnest normies trying to figure things out or misguided allies tilting at Christian nationalist windmills that don't really exist. Anti-Christian nationalists need to stop assuming the worst of Christian nationalists exploring these ideas. We're told in scripture not to be conformed to the world. Most of us have grown up with assumptions about how the world works. And what the best form of government is, that are not directly derived from God's word. It would serve us all well to identify those assumptions and hold them up for closer scrutiny. Whether or not they come to the right conclusions or not, this is one thing these Christian nationalists do well. Anti-Christian nationalists should be careful not to elevate the American ideals, as reinterpreted by post-war liberal consensus, or as originally articulated in the founding era, to the level of biblical doctrine. Our founders were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not wrong to question their decisions or discuss where their project went wrong. Of all the flavors of Christian nationalism, this group is the most recently inaugurated. The vanguard of any movement is always a bit more raucous. But behind the rowdy facade is a sincere desire to answer and address the most interesting and important questions of negative world. Time will tell if this incipient movement can survive the growing pains. To become something more formidable and mature, but it would be a mistake to dismiss them as immature trolls or worse, particularly as more seasoned and careful voices are drawn to this conversation and elevate the discourse. Conclusion That's the Christian nationalism debate in very broad strokes. Most folks aren't going to fit neatly into any one of the aforementioned categories, but it should serve as a helpful, heuristic, Should you encounter any self-professed Christian nationalists or anti-Christian nationalists in your church or choose to wade into this conversation yourself? Don't feel like you have to choose a side right now. This movement is just beginning. Take some time to really listen to the arguments and think through your position. Again, remember that Christian nationalism is a developing label. Arguments for and against Christian nationalism need to be extremely specific. There shouldn't be any ambiguity about what you're advocating for or opposing. Otherwise, your opponent in this debate is going to fill that label with their preconceived notions of what Christian nationalism is, resulting in a lot of miscommunication, which our enemies on the left will be more than happy to exploit. The vast majority of evangelicals remain undecided on Christian nationalism. Most would love to see America restored to something resembling a Christian nation of some sort, where abortion is outlawed and our children are protected from LGBT plus ideology. Looking around at the rapidly degenerating culture we occupy, however, they just don't believe that that's ever going to be possible without another great awakening. Just preach the gospel, they say. While we should all of course be evangelizing and praying that God sends revival, this line of thinking reveals a misplaced faith in numbers as if God is unable to act to restrain evil without a popular majority. Throughout scripture, God delights in demonstrating his power through his people against superior forces. As the world grows increasingly hostile to the things of God, the church should not despair. God is not impotent in the face of growing evil. Regardless of where you land on the finer points of Christian nationalism, Christians should not grow weary in the good work of opposing the wickedness that is destroying our nation and claiming so many innocent victims. We serve a big God who doesn't need a supermajority of regenerate Christians to act on behalf of the most vulnerable. He can use a remnant to turn the hearts of unbelievers just as surely as he used Wilberforce to bring about the end of the slave trade in England. Our political enemies are determined. They don't let small numbers discourage them. Just look at what the LGBT plus movement has accomplished with less than 10% of the population. We have the King of Kings on our side. How much more confident and determined should we be? As Jonathan said to his armor bearer as the two of them went to pick a fight with the Philistines Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Regardless of where you find yourself in the Christian nationalism debate, may that sort of bold, audacious faith mark our cultural engagement as we reason together to determine the best path forward. That's our show for today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that and found that helpful. Um, Please share it with a friend. uh, If uh, you know, you're having these conversations, I think this, the Christian nationalism conversation is, uh, it's here to stay for a while. I think there's a lot of um, really interesting ideas um, behind it. I think, it's attempting to answer a lot of questions that have uh, arisen out of this transition into negative world. So I think, um, you know, wherever you fall on it, I think it's, it's, it's worth your time to um, at least pay attention uh, somewhat and try and understand the various uh, arguments and uh, issues that are being um, discussed within this conversation. So Um, Yeah, I hope you found that helpful. There's a link in this description where you can read the uh, long form piece over at American Reformer. And um, yeah, if you uh, enjoyed this, you're enjoying the show, um, please share it with a friend. Ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts are always helpful. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe so you don't miss future content. And we will be back soon with uh, a new guest uh, next week.